1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who wear our country's uniform. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last episode, we heard from Lieutenant Colonel Winston M. Roche, and today we're finishing his story. Lieutenant Colonel Roche served in the United States Army's 5th Infantry Division.
0: Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning.
2: and then Samuel was the first to make American push. And Muse Argonne was, was the worst. That was the bitterest, wickedest battle we were in. But uh, as I say, when the night before you know you're going over, going to attack, you hardly sleep at all. You just just sleep fitfully and, and you dread it and you do the job you're told to do. You're elated when you have success. We get our troops into no man's land and the wave is moving. The engineers go on ahead and cut the enemy wire. If this is in daylight, of course, you usually would not set up an attack on a beautiful sunny day. That's the time you stay in your holes, because you're sitting ducks. That's the way we fought. In the early days of the war, they would mass formation shoulder to shoulder, like they did way back in the 1800s, when the troops would be one long, long, solid line where you could just hook yourself there and just level your gun and just shoot them like clay pigeons where the casualties were terrible. And uh, at some spots in World War One we had to attack like that. And sometimes we were given orders in a day when it didn't rain. It would be murky, cloudy, and not too sharp in the air. But you could see very clearly lots of times we had to advance on an object, uh, objective and right in the face of it. I was wounded three times. I was machine gunned once through the side. I didn't even know my hit until my rifle flew out of my hand. And the bullet had already gone through my side, right between, clean as the whistle, between two ribs, and took off a chunk off my thumb chunk out of this finger and the top of that finger off and I wondered at first to I do or how'd that happen? I didn't even know I was hit and then I thought oh boy was I lucky it just hit my rifle and then later on I got real wet in my drawers <laughs> and I thought I'd peed in my pants because I was so scared, but uh, it was the blood running down my legs running down my side. It happened so quick and you have to do with it. Not like me, when I got, I picked my rifle up and kept on going. I did know that I was wounded. I knew my, I'd been hit by something, but uh, I didn't think it was anything luckily. Of course, that bullet had gone through my leg or my chest or something hit something inside of me in a different matter. But I kept on going and as we dreaded the gas. If the enemy had been used to using gas in our sector that we was in, we dreaded it because the gas masks were bulky, pain in the necks hanging on your chest. They were in in the way of everything you did. And they were hard to get on and off. It took time to get them out of their uh, case. The manufacturers didn't make everyone perfect. And some of them even didn't fit good. So that all you had to hang on to was to keep your your nose plugged up and try to keep it out of your eyes because once the gas got into your eyes or your nose while well, you were a dead duck, so far as any more action is concerned, because you couldn't breathe, you couldn't see, your eyes would flow like a, a faucet. The water would just run down your cheeks and burn and You've seen pictures probably in magazines of men coming back from gas attacks, holding onto one another's shoulder, with bandages over their eyes. That's because they're temporarily blind. And I've been that way twice. The second time it was very bad. I was in the hospital for several weeks before I got back. And uh, you think you're a goner, you choke. You can't see, and you burn to be hell. You just think you're gone or you're gonna die right there. It's a terrible feeling. It's a lot worse than a bullet. Now, we'll talk about tank warfare for a moment. Uh, we just happened to be in an area and fighting over terrain that uh, was not, uh, amicable to tank warfare, so I never fought in front of or behind one of the big tanks. And we had, a, for its time, a very good tank invented by the British. And I forget the name of it, but it, it had a track that went clear around. The tread went clear around the length of the tank. It just moved all the time on this track. Uh, the modern tanks have tracks just around the wheels under the armor plating. But this one, the, the tread was, went clear around the length of the tank, one continuous speed, it just crawled on these two treads. We never saw one of those in action. Those were mostly in action on the British front and in the northern part of, uh, France. The tank that I did see, and I got to drive one, was a one-man, French Renault. And it's a little tiny tank, like a Model T automobile would have been in those days. Just room for one man in there. And you had your machine gun, 30-caliber French uh, machine gun. And uh, of course, they fended off the bullets, and they were a ball to drive. I've driven one of those, and the noise is terrible. The engine's right there in your lap, practically. It's right under you, and the smell is terrible. If you get into one of those in that gas attack, you're in bad trouble. You have to have some clear air, and you can't wear your gas mask and drive one of those tanks. At least I couldn't, because you just have those slits to see out of. But uh, i have been in them and heard the bullets hit them like rain hit the tin roof. So anyhow, uh, I was more uh, what you might call a fun caper, just to see what it was like to drive a tank under fire. So it, it didn't amount to too much, but I did feel a great security in them. I knew the average bullet was would have torn me to pieces was going to hurt me. It just bounced off the armor of the tank. But they were great little tanks. If you had the open country where you could move them, take them right up to a pillbox machine guns and uh, put a machine gun, a 50-caliber machine gun out of Commission right now because you just shoot right into the aperture. They couldn't do a thing about it Gas warfare is terrible because first you can't see it in the dark And usually most of the uh, Gas encounters we had were in the night a dry night when it wasn't raining and usually on a quiet front, where they, a gas attack usually preceded a big attack. And this is the way they hope to get the first breakthrough, our lines, by sneaking up on us and knocking us out with a gas attack. And it's similar to the smell of a skunk. Once you get a whiff of it, you never forget it. You know, the minute you get a little tiny whiff, you know right away there's gas in the air, and you can even smell it in your own house. This, practically, just cooking gas when it, they, there's a burner on. If you're at all sharp, you'll smell it. Hey, the gas burner's on somewhere. So you shut it off. Well, it penetrates everything. It penetrates your clothes, and. Uh, in World War One, we had one uniform, one. We did everything in that one uniform and you kept it as long as you were in action. No extra pair of boots. We had two pairs of underwear, one you had on. We had one shirt, two pairs of socks, one pair of pants, one blouse, one helmet. That's all. We lived on the cold coffee we had in our canteen and uh, biscuits to hardtack. Biscuit about that thick and about inch and a half square, where you uh, dunked it in cold coffee for you. If you try to bite it, you break your teeth to break it is so tough. So we just dunk it, a coffee. We lived on those things. We were in, in the Argonne Forest, where, by the way, we saw some of the most beautiful air battles. As I say, we didn't have radio from airplanes to the ground observers. We had to wait until the aircraft landed to give us the information that there are several thousand troops massing on hill, so-and-so, or coming up a ravine, so-and-so for an attack. This was all uh, had to be done vocally, orally. On our front, the Samuel front, there were three sausage balloons. I was very surprised. One of our tertiary miles to our left, one almost immediately in front of us. Saint was to our left, Reedville was over here, and there was one up there maybe five miles away, all of them observing. Now, this was just before we went into the Argonne Woods, which would be the battle that finished World War One. So we had won the Battle of Saint And San Mio was just a big bulge in the line, been there four years. And that bulge stayed there all through the war until the Americans picked it as their first major action for an American army. So General Pershing and his generals worked out and they flanked it. And we cut off all the mainline troops. They were surrounded. And we flattened it out in eight hours and pushed it three miles into German territory. And that thing had been there for four years. They hadn't been able to get it out. We were resting because we were going over the top in the next morning into the Argon, which proved to be 42 days of pure hell. 42 days we were in there without a bath or a relief. Under fire all the time, losing men that beat hell. Well, anyhow, here are these three balloons. And there's a dogfight, beautiful dogfight going off up in the sky. To watch these little biplanes, they look like little toys. And they look, they were slow, you know, uh, 150 miles an hour was fast in those days. For instance, I, I remember that when I was flying the D.H., Four. I'd have to put it into a dive to get 135 knots they cruise along you, you could land a jenny at 30 miles an hour 30 miles an hour and you took off at about 40 so that's how simple they were see but here are these little biplanes graceful circles and loops and chandels and immelmans and trying to get on each other's tail and many, many times we've seen three or four of them going on suddenly here'll come a black smoke, trail of them black smoke when it gets shut down, see. And we were focused on this dogfight going on and finally one of the fellows suddenly said, hey look, here comes one for the balloons, you're going to attack the balloons. So. We all shift our attention there. Sure enough, here comes this Fokker aircraft with the old Black Cross on it and heading right for this balloon over Raineyville. And they shoot tracer bullets. This is in order for the pilot to see if he hits the balloon. And you can see the white trail of the tracers going one side of the balloon and come out the other. Of course, on the ground, we had a ring of uh, Lewis and the Browning machine guns shooting up. And he shot this one down. We could see very plain the bullets entering it and going out and coming out at the other side. I think I was the one that said, oh, God, he missed all three of them. Because there they were. They were all still hanging. He's zooming off into the distance. Then here comes another one chasing towards him. And it was an American. And they said later, I can't verify this, but they said it was Eddie Rickenbacker, and he was on that front. His squadron was on that front. So it could have been that they said it was him. About that time that we saw Rickenbacker, if that was him, go across, the first one exploded. One great big boof, just like that. And then suddenly, just two seconds, Whoop, this one goes up, and then all three of them. See, the bullet ignites it inside. It doesn't explode right now. It kind of builds, I guess, until it gets a certain amount of air, and up it goes, just like an explosion. So that was a beautiful show right there, everything right in front of us. So we never forget that. (laughs) So that's the first thing that the Americans, and I guess the French did that too in the early parts of the war, and thought about that, to make your own bombs. So we take three-inch shell casings and just chunk them full of all kinds of stuff, everything we could put in there, and make our own bombs, seal them up, put the fuse in, and we had different types of fuses. Of course, we had detonators, and as well as uh, uh, live fuses. American kids—that's the beauty of an American soldier. He's so resourceful. We would uh, get over a road while we were supposed to be observing for enemy activity and everything, and uh, we'd get over a road. And we'd uh, see a line of trucks. we try to work out our windage and we'd let them go, see. And then we'd fire them back and we'd try to watch the trajectory as they dropped. And sometimes we'd be two or three hundred yards off target because uh, you gotta figure the windage and uh, you have to work out the trajectory. So uh, we had made some good hits. We got pretty good. Uh, after you did it maybe three or four times, you got pretty good where you could come pretty close to it. So the bombers that we used to make and dump over the sides, they did pretty good damage, Yeah.
1: That was World War I veteran Lieutenant Colonel Winston Roche. Lieutenant Colonel Roche was 93 years old when he recorded this interview. Two years later, in 1994, Roche died in Los Angeles, California at the age of 95. Next time on Warriors In Their Own Words, we'll hear from an altogether different kind of warrior, one who served in the shadows. CIA agent Mike Howard served as an operations officer from the Cold War to the Global War on Terror. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to see this interview in your feed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Assistant producer is Declan Roars. Audio engineer is Sean Ruhl-Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible, and the hold was so crowded, that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps, and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.